Amen. Wonderful. Well, if you can turn to the book of Ephesians and chapter 1, we started last week a short series looking at our identity. And uh, the point was made that uh, from a very young age, uh, whether you'd call yourself a Christian or not, I made the, uh, the claim that to be human means you fundamentally ask yourself the question, who am I? Who actually am I? And we invariably take labels that the world offers us to that question. We often do it unconsciously. We do it based on a whole host of different reasons. Oh, I'm the ugly one. I'm the cool one. I'm the intelligent one. I'm the successful one. I'm the athletic one. I'm the dutiful wife. I'm the powerful husband. Whatever it might be, we, throughout our lives, in answer to this good question, we often take imperfect labels that the world offers to us. And I made the point that the, the problem with that is that it leads, first of all, to either pride, where if that good label that you've picked, you feel like you're actually achieving it in a given week, then you feel pride. If for some reason you feel like you aren't able to wear that label with pride, then you feel despair. And so when this, is, when this is your life, and you might even be a Christian for a long time, but functionally, you're wearing these labels, these identities, you'll, you'll be doing this. You will be, I know it's certainly my experience for much of my life, is that you end up flitting between pride and despair, pride and despair. And either way, it's just exhausting. Life is exhausting at a quiet level. You clap your hands and, yeah, the joy of the Lord. But really, you're just quietly exhausted because functionally, actually practically, uh, we can still very much be living under those labels. And I made the claim that one way of understanding the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus Christ, is that he has come to give us fresh glorious, heaven-sent, gifted identity. That when you become a Christian, which is the phrase we often use, it's a bit of a kind of, I don't know, it's fine, I've become a Christian. The Bible gives us these extraordinary treasure trove of other ways of understanding it. And, uh, and, and the glorious thing is that the gospel, at one level, is about giving you, by grace, through the blood of Jesus, through the resurrection of Jesus, a brand new identity, whether you felt it or not, whether you became a Christian when you were four years old and you can't even remember not being a Christian, this book is so black and white and clear that the difference between your previous earthly, worldly labels and now the labels that have been given to you through the work of somebody else is breathtaking. And um, the gospel includes being given new labels, hallelujah. But also, it's actually a lot bigger than that. We've been using a table uh, that will come up on the screen that will help you understand what is the gospel. We made the point last week that uh, the gospel is at least four things, and Scripture expresses this. It starts top left with who God is, God's identity. Who is this Christian God that we talk a lot about? The Bible starts there. Actually, it doesn't start with us. It starts with Him. Again and again, it's surprising that way. It actually talks about God, His universe, His world, His ways. Secondarily, out of who He is and His kindness and His mercy and His holiness, 
we often then see that Scripture flows into his activities. Because of who he is, he acts in a specific way. Because God is kind, he didn't just, you know, screw up planet Earth after the first sin. He has stuck with us and worked hard to express kindness towards us. And therefore, what we find is box three is the labels box, not for God, but for us. Because of who God is and what he's done, we as Christians, scandalous as it sounds, believe that God promises that he has gifted us securely, never to be removed, label upon label, identity upon identity, that comes purely as an act of God's grace alone. And then, finally, gloriously, we do get to box four, which is actually what most of us spend our life living in, the activity that we now do. But it comes there. It comes last. It comes as the fourth element. So even if you look at Ephesians, the book we're looking here, the first half, chapters one to three, are all about who God is and what God has done and who we now are. Paul doesn't even start talking about your behavior. There's no practical tips in the first three, t- in the first three chapters. There's no how-tos. In chapters 4, 5, and 6, he does get practical, but it's all after he's put, the, he's put the weight there. Do you understand? So this series is about redressing where the weight is in your life. Whether we read this book scrabbling for something to do, or whether we read it going, Lord, today I want to know who you are. That's, I want to know who, that is the gospel. Who actually are you? Are you like my earthly dad? Or my earthly mum? Well, are you different? And therefore, what have you actually done because of who you are? And then, who am I? What is my truest labels? Not the labels I've inherited because of failure or success or because my mum and dad said that or because I'm a front, from a certain background or ethnicity, whatever it might be. No, no, no. As a Christian, this is why we're one in Christ because we share the same labels. It's glorious. There's a unity that God sees that we don't see yet, but it's true. So these labels are amazing. And uh, last week we just looked at the first one in, in this book. We could spend a long, long, long time uh, in this book. The first one that Paul talks about, which is being holy, saints. He makes the bold claim that as a Christian, you are not fundamentally a sinner, doomed to sin. You are not that. You are his beloved bride. You are holy. And you are a saint. Who does sin? But the weight of the identity. I mean, it's scandalous. God is holy, we all agree. But now he says, you are holy. Present tense. Woohoo! It's am- it is amazing. It's scandalous. And it's just, oh, it just changes things in your being. When you start to feel it. It's like, ooh, thank you. It's amazing. This gospel is just, you know, that's why Paul says to the church in Rome, I long to come and preach the gospel to you. You're like, well, Paul, they're Christians. What do you mean you come to preach the gospel? Well, because for Paul, you never graduate from the gospel. If you graduate from the gospel, you haven't got the gospel. Do you understand? If you've really started, your life is not about the gospel. Oh, the gospel for the non-Christians. No, it's not. Well, it is. It's for everyone. We will spend eternity dwelling on the meditations of what God has done, who he is, what he's done, who we are. You don't graduate from that. Okay? It is the engine for all change. All discipleship flows out of the gospel. It's glorious. So, so this is what we're attempting to just meditate on like a fine wine a little bit over these few weeks. Last week we looked at that. Let's see what the next secondary label that Paul comes to today 
which comes straight after the saint's holy one. From verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. There he is, he's saying straight away. Do you see the box flow thing? That is because of the will of God. I'm not apostle because I chose it. Could have been an evangelist or a prophet. I'm apostle because the will of God. To the saints, when you read later in Ephesus, or in Ephesians rather, you see that they're not acting brilliant. Let's just put it that way. But he calls them saints. To the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father, i.e. to be a Christian means that you know God brings grace to you. God brings peace to you. That's your truest Father now. And the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be. Let's get excited to the God and Father. Let's praise Him who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. And here we go. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons as his daughters, as his children, through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure. Love that. Pleasure and will. Separate things. He's willed it, but it's his pleasure to do it. I love that. He takes, isn't that amazing? It's his pleasure. I wonder what the pleasure of God actually looks like. I'm going to, mm, I'm going to adopt them. I'm not just going to predestine them to be holy. I'm going to adopt them. Do you think that's good, Jesus? Oh, high five. That's an amazing, woohoo! Rejoicing before creation was made, the pleasure of God over you, the pleasure of God over your future adoption. That's, that's kind of mind-blowing. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's freely given us in the one he loves. Chapter 5, verse 8 he says similar thing, for you once were darkness, but now you are light. It's identity language. Christian, you are light. Non-Christian, you are darkness. That's what the Bible says. I had 20 years as an atheist. I would not have seen myself as darkness. And you might get cross with me, and that's okay. Come and chat to me at the end. But the Bible says, you once were darkness. But now our light in the Lord, live out of that identity, live as children of light. So let's look today at what it means to be a child of light. I love that. A child of light. Tom Shaw, age 40, going gray, a little fuller figured nowadays. I'm a child of light. Lord, help us now as we dive into these deep and profound truths. I pray, lift off the labels that we wear, the identities, the things we're proud of that we've achieved through our box for life. Just lift them off by the grace of Jesus. And just let us dare to believe that even if you're the oldest person in this room, if you know Jesus, you are still a child of God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So, first of all then, I want to just spend a few moments helping uh, convince you that whether you know it or not, this is a big deal. You see, one of the ways that we can understand planet Earth 
outside of being a Christian, the Bible implies really that you are an orphan. If you think about it, if we as Christians are now adopted, what that means is before we're adopted, we're actually orphans. Even if we're impressive, powerful, successful people in the world, this world, the Bible says, is, is a world that carries an orphan-heartedness, a sense of aloneness. What is an orphan? Well, an orphan is someone who's desperately alone. Even if they're a strong orphan, there's a sense of lacking security, lacking affirmation. Uh, you know, an orphan wants those things. It wants provision. And when you start to see the world in that way, it does start to make sense. Oh, yeah. Actually, if this world was designed to have a wonderful father, if everyone was designed more than any other relationship ever to know a father, but that's not there, then the world scrabbles in a hundred different ways to try and get some sense of that security, some sense of that affirmation, some sense of that provision from somewhere, anywhere. That's the tragedy. That's what's happening in Visalia today, right now, as people wake up. Whether they know it or not, they are carrying, if they do not know Christ, something of an orphan-heartedness, and in Tulare, and in Hanford, and in, and in Exeter, and all around, in the whole of this world. But you may be uh, someone who, like many of us, you may know Jesus, but you may actually carry, you may have become a Christian, but carry into your Christian life, without realizing it, still functionally the same mindset. That's a huge a huge epidemic is that you can still functionally live like an orphan. Your life can still be marked by, by certain things that I'll, I'll read out in a moment that actually are telltale signs that really still you're still living not in the good of what God has given you. Does that make sense? So you think, okay, Tom, I'm not sure about that. Prove it. All right, I'll try. There's a great book by Jack Frost, great name. Uh, spiritual slavery to spiritual sonship. And um, he gives a few sort of areas of life that uh, we all will have a view on, an outlook on. And if you have uh, an orphan outlook, he describes in these areas of life what you might be a bit like. Okay, so just sit back and let me read this over us for a couple of minutes and just see if any of these descriptions land with you at all. Okay, first of all, the orphan outlook, if it's something that's in your life, even if you're a Christian, is first of all starts with your image itself of God, box one, who God actually is. Orphans see God as a master whom they must appease continually. They feel that they must pray more, read the Bible more, work harder to earn God's notice and favor. They are often left with a feeling that there's something more that I should do or put in order before God will be pleased with me. To an orphan, God is not just a master, he's a taskmaster. Secondarily, area of dependency. Orphans are independent, self-reliant. They depend upon their gifts, talents, intellect, and anointing. They are convinced that they cannot trust anyone else, and if they want anything, they must get it for themselves. If anything is to get done right, I'll just have to do it myself, is what an orphan mindset says. Need for approval. We all need approval, we get that. But orphans are addicted to and strive for the praise, approval, 
and acceptance of man. But these counterfeit affections don't satisfy and instead actually lead to the fear of failure and rejection, which pulls an orphan heart further away from God. An orphan-hearted motive for service. Orphans serve. Yeah, you respond to what Neva was saying about the kids' work. The reason that we respond, if you're an orphan, is out of a sense of need for personal achievement. And we seek to impress God and others. That's why we serve. This often takes the form of hyper-religious activity. And some orphans then become so tired or cynical with the struggle, they lose motivation for serving and just end up in apathy. Self-image, how we see ourselves if you're an orphan. Orphans generally possess a really low self-image and an attitude of self-rejection. I saw this in myself probably about a year ago. I never would have thought of that about myself. But I was anticipating people's rejection all the time. Which results from comparing themselves to others and feeling that they come out on the short end of the stick. Others seem more blessed somehow. Others seem more loved. Others seem to get all the breaks. Source of comfort if you're an orphan. Because orphans have shut a portion of their heart off from expressed love from God, orphans seek comfort in counterfeit affections. Addictions, compulsions, escapism, busyness, activity, etc. Believing that the busier they are, the happier they are, and the more worthy they are of Father's love. And because they have an independent spirit and depend on themselves, orphans find a false sense of comfort in their own good works. A couple more. Peer relationships. Orphans often relate to their peers through competition, rivalry, or jealousy towards other success and position. And they believe they have to fight and scramble for every advantage and desire. Orphans cannot genuinely rejoice over the success or advancement of others. They feel that if they are not on top, they will not be valued or respected. Finally, handling others' faults. Orphans, being self-focused, generally resort to accusation and exposure of other people's faults while denying or trying to hide their own. In an effort to make themselves look good, they attempt to make others look bad. (laughs) They seek to build themselves up by tearing others down. They destroy relationships with issues of control, criticalness, possessiveness, or the lack of respect and honor. (sighs) Painful but helpful, right? Painful but helpful. The, The challenge is, what happens is, if we don't first feel something of the pain, is that when we read adopted... I'm a son of God, I'm a child jo- of God. It just bounces off us. Do you understand? You, it's like when you go to the doctor, you have to actually realize, oh, I am ill. <laughs> That's why this thing is an issue. So, so although it's painful, my, my, my prayer would be that we, we do do business today. We do feel that. We don't pretend, That's not me. If, if you have got a heartbeat, you almost certainly are on at least something of a journey of this. So let me just be really vulnerable with you about how this has started, I'm using my words carefully, started to bring freedom in, in my personal life. How Ephesians, how this truth that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus 2,000 years ago 
of being a child. I'm not just holy. I am holy. I'm good enough. But I am also his child. I am justified in the law courts, but actually justification is a means to an end. It's not the end. I'm also, I'm justified, so I'm adopted. The warmth is what we're trying to look at today. The warmth, not just being good, but it's also the warmth of being his beloved children. So the three orphan labels that I've spotted in my life, the Tom Shaw ones that I'm embarrassed to admit, but I will admit. First of them is the fixer. Secondarily is the achiever. And thirdly is the pleaser. Rhymes. And uh, with all these, the Lord has been exposing that for whatever reason. These have been in my heart. And over the last few years, the Lord has been starting to expose them. And with each of them saying, you're not, you're not primarily a fixer, a solver. You are a son. You are not primarily an achiever, Tom. You are a son. You are not primarily a pleaser of other people. You are my boy, my son, my lad, my beautiful beloved one. So let me just unpack a little bit of this. So first of all then, the first orphan label that I've worn has been the fixer, the solver, the one who is over-responsible. Okay, it's good to take responsibility. I'm not denying that. I know that's a big value here and I get that. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your, your actual hardwiring at a deep level has become so hardwired to always feel that you are the one, when there's any need anywhere, the one that has to be the solution. So even now, as a 40-year-old adult, this is one of the ways I can tell when I'm wearing this label, is when my wife Josie shares a problem with me and I get angry because I'm trying to solve it. And I'm like, this is the 50th thing I've got to solve today. And she's like, I don't want you to solve it. You can't solve it. I am sharing it with you. If you have got this tendency, what happens is you're constantly living under this, I've got to solve everything thing. Until finally you get to the point where a very gentle, innocent problem, which isn't meant to be your issue to solve, tips you. Does that make sense? And you're like, ah! And not that I'd ever do that, of course. But, you know, inside, I'm mildly, I'm like, ah! Oh! And that, why are you having this reaction to it? And I don't know. It's not even a big deal, but I'm going to take the bin out, you know, whatever it is. And you're like, another thing to solve. And, and, and you have this kind of messianic thing going on in you. And I grew up in a family that was a bit, woo, you know, at times. My brother's a bit wild. My sister was very wild. And, I mean, we're very close, but I grew up as this like, I'll work hard, son. And so I will gently, you know, even though Colossians says Jesus holds everything together, I actually in my head, was holding everything together. And it just, and then, you become a pastor. I mean, I mean that is like, oh my goodness. You know, for goodness, it's like, it's like, it is like an alcoholic working at a bar. It's like, you, the propensity to try, I will solve your problem, my friend. Because what happens is, we're not going to God, we're just looking at each other the whole time. So I will come and be accountable to you. And basically what that means is I'm going to try and solve your problem and you're going to look to me and we'll kind of vaguely mention God. But basically, your brokenness is leading to my brokenness and let's bounce back forever. And so what happens is box four is just getting more and more huge. I don't, I've forgotten who God is. That's a distant memory, let alone what God's done. I don't even think about who I am. It's all about what I'm doing. And I live on adrenaline. I lived on adrenaline rather than the Holy Spirit. I'm trying harder, working more efficiently. All box four language is exhausting. And it, 
I'm not even going to bother to try and work out where it came from. I can see it in my kids. Some of them are more disposed to feel responsible than the others. It's just in them. And if you're like that, you will resonate with that. And so we carry this, and you can be a fully grown adult and still be living as an orphan. It's a subtle thing. This is the great irony. For me, my orphan label, my false self that I developed this old self, this false self of Tom who will be responsible for every one thing. Ironically, this is the real irony, really it was almost like seeing myself as a bit of a father figure. People would say, oh Tom, you're, you know, I've learned from you and you're a bit of a father figure. And I would unconsciously wear that label, which sounds not a problem, right? The problem is my identity is I'm not a father. My identity is I'm a son. You see, a father or a mother, by implications, is responsible. Yeah, they are the ones in control. They are the ones that have to have a plan. If you go on holiday, you're relying on the plans of the parents. Where are we going to go? Who's typed it into the sat-nav? Who's got the sandwiches for the meal? Who, have you filled up the car? The weight of responsibility is on the parents. It's not on the kids, you understand? They just jump into the car and they go. But if you're living as, I am responsible in your life then even though the joy of the Lord's meant to be your strength, it's not because you're just endlessly fixing in your life. Do you understand? It's just exhausting. And it's, and, 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 and whereas when you start, to, wait a minute, look at Jesus. Was that Jesus, is that who Jesus was? I mean, think of it, this is Jesus, the son of God who could have solved world hunger. Boom. He could, he's God. Was Jesus living under this pressure of fixing everything. No. His, his, his delight was in the plans of his father. His yoke, how could Jesus say, my yoke is easy and my burden is light? Well, if he wasn't. I mean, even Jesus was saying, I'm relying on my father. Even Jesus was saying, I'm not in that sense the fixer. Isn't that amazing? I'm relying on my father's plans every single day. I have completed the works that my father gave me to do. It's amazing. That's such a that's a that's a that's a game changer. I mean, if we, we live beyond our limits so often because of an orphanness, we have no idea whether our father wants to do these things, we're just doing them. Because of our old self, our false self just kicks in all the time. And we feel better temporarily from just doing our box full thing. And when we start to live in the good of actually being kind of, it's like we start to transition from this exhausting fixer thing. To begin to let things drop, can you let stuff drop? Can you let there be a bit of mystery and mess? I mean, I tell you, coming and leaving everything has pushed this. I mean, if I wasn't convinced that my dad's told me to do this, when I I left my girls crying at school, grasping for 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 Josie or me, in front of all the other kids, the English kids are freaking out. That, I mean, that as a parent, if you're not a thousand percent sure that this is, this is on my dad, this is not on me, I can't, do you know what I'm saying? If they grow up going, Dad, why did you do this? Now, by the grace of God, I'm happy to report they are loving it. But I'm saying, what I'm saying is, you know, there is absolute pain on the way. Now, if I wear that, my label is I'm the fixer. I, I can't, no, no, no. He, it's on him. He's responsible, not me. My responsibility, as best as I can in my life, is to every day live 
listening to my father and to say, I think, I'm pretty sure that he told us to do this. And I don't want you to go through anything, but I, I, I'm, 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 this is on him. What starts to happen day by day is joy. It's joy starts to come. You know, you start to be, I'm a son of God. I am not primarily a father. Even the lie, this is, you're going to laugh at this, I'm not actually old. Now, the world will tell me, I'm 40, clock's ticking. That's what you'll hear. And what that plays into is then, well, I am now becoming an older, wiser. Well, theologically, I'm actually a son. Do you understand? You're, you might be 90 here. Theologically, you were a daughter of God. Do you see there's, a, there's something about that word that is freeing? That is meant to be freeing until the day you die. That you're meant to go into glory with a childlikeness. When you hear Terry in a few weeks' time, Terry is 78. He is the biggest activist I've ever known in my life. He never stops. He is Mr. Box 4 at one level. But it's because he is so rooted in Box 1, 2, and 3. And he is like a child. He has a, in a most wonderful way, he is so trusting of his dad in heaven. He's so, in a way, simplistic in the most beautiful sense. He hasn't got a strategic bone in his body. And he deli- he's just, I, I'm a worshipper. He's number one. He's, I am a worshipper of God. That's who I am. I want to be like that, don't you? When you're a child of God, there is something about you get physically older, but in a sense, you should almost be getting more aware of your youth in God. You're, I, am, I am a child. I, 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 I delight in him. I've, I've just delighted in that. I've delighted saying again and again to the elders here, ah, oh, I am not an elder. I've had the privilege of being with these guys a lot. I love saying, I'm not an elder. That's on you. You're responsible for this church before the Lord. Now, listen, for me... Insecure Tom, I would have been clinging, I would have been grasping for titles. That's the old Tom. Do you understand? My, my fixer thing loves a bit of leadership title. Ooh, yeah, I'll take that, wear that one. But I am learning to say, I'm just a son of God. Not just, I am a son of God. And whatever, the Lord will open up whatever he wants to do in, in my life. But I can just, do you see what I'm saying? I can be free to be free from those things. So, it's on him and the responsibilities on him. Zaphia Hartley recently um, adopted her sister's two sons, Joshua and Jackson. It's beautiful. And she said she had this very profound moment where she was before the judge recently at this serious moment where she was, he was asking her, do you promise to be responsible, to take responsibility for Joshua and Jackson? She was like, yes, I do. Do you promise to take responsibility for loving them? As much as if you were their biological mother. Yes, I do. Will you take responsibility for giving them all of your finances and all of your wealth when you die? Yes, I do. And she, was, she felt this way. But this is what struck her. That it was all on her. The, the kids were just like looning around, picking their nose, you know, fighting, having a laugh. This terribly serious moment where she was like, yes, I pledge. And she was... She was taking responsibility, and it was all one way. It was one way. They were just receiving it. They, when they grew up, could totally reject her. Do you understand? That is a picture of our God. He has adopted you, and you might be picking your nose and coloring and looning around, but he has covenanted himself to you. He has sent his only son. What more could he possibly do to, to, to express to you, even before you were born, Billy, I have sent a way in which you could be my son forever, secure for the eternity. I mean, it's breathtaking. It is one-way traffic. He is responsible. He is the giver. We are always the receivers. We are not. It's, the weight is not on us. 
Even now with those how-tos in your life, as real as they are, my deepest prayer, that there'll be a shift in your soul's way. You'll just be able to go, I give it to you. I'm just a son. I'm just a daughter. I cannot fix my wayward kids. I cannot fix that situation over there. I cannot do it just in my human strength. I am not God. I am just a little person, small but very important, which is the definition of a child. I'm small, but I'm very important to my dad. Hallelujah. Oh, give it to him today. Hallelujah. Don't wear that weight. Don't wear it. Secondarily, the, other, the second uh, orphan label I found myself wearing, maybe you'll identify, is like the achiever. See, behind each of these labels is a fear. Orphans live in fear. It's the core element. That's what Romans 8 tells us. You've no longer been given a spirit of fear, but of adoption. So behind all of these orphan labels is actually a type of fear. That first fear really is a fear of not being in control, which is why you love being the fixer in your head, right? You want to feel like you're in control when you're not, and I'm not. The second label, though, uh, orphan label, is that of achiever, which basically is where you start to believe the lie for you to be significant, Tom, you've got to be the best. You've got to be the coolest. You've got to be the best looking. You've got to be the most intelligent. And it is a huge orphan lie that is pumped out into America, right? It's absolutely everywhere. It's, it, it goes beyond a healthy desire to do well. And what happens is you wear, we wear these labels that ultimately define us totally in relation to box four. If you feel like you're achieving well. So that's why, for example, perfectionism. Perfectionism is something that robs so many of us of celebration. It robs so many of us of thankfulness. Unless something's perfect, unless it is absolutely 100% in your view, spot on, when this is, when this is, when this is your label, the achiever thing, the perfectionist thing, when your box four, according to your head, lets you down, despair immediately comes to you. You're one of those people who find it hard to, to just receive well done for an imperfect but good job. Yeah? How does that sound? Hey, well done. That was so not perfect, but well done. How does that, seriously, how does that land on you? Ooh. But that's always the case, right? Isn't it? Of course it is. It's always... That is, that is the reality of our lives. And so we, we are driven, we're unthankful. But when we realize that we are not primarily achievers, we are, we are children of God. We are children of God. You know, it's, a child will not do things perfectly. Poppy, who's six, loves pic- pictures. She loves drawing. But there's immediately, there's this thing in her that just gets angry when it's not perfect. There's this frustration. And, and I can see it in others. I can see it in Poppy. Why is she like that? Why can't she delight in her imperfect picture of me and mum? Why is she getting cross? Because that foot's a lot bigger than the other one and she can't control her hands properly. You know, we, we can delight in it over there, but when it's in me, when there's my version of Poppy's pictures, I'm like, Rawr! it needs to be perfect. And it just, it just kills joy. And, we, and, and it's so sad because the father says, no, 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 you're, Tom, you are my child. You are my child, and I've set you free from having to be perfect. 
Because Jesus, the lamb, was perfect, the focus was on the lamb, right? The focus of the priest was always on the lamb. We learned that last week. The focus is on the lamb, and the lamb was perfect, which means I can relax. I can actually increasingly in my life relax and enjoy the work of somebody else. Jesus totally models this. You see, if your picture of God, your theology of God, is that God is a taskmaster, it will, it will rob us of living lives where our box for things that we do are always a mix. They're always imperfect. If we're living under this, this false picture of our Father, I mean, this is huge. This is so huge. If we are living under this weight of my Father is a certain way, He's critical, He's a perfectionist, He will praise me as long as what I do is bang on and perfect. If you're living under that, it is absolutely exhausting. And I just don't see that in Jesus. I see a Father who is overflowingly keen to communicate to the world and to his son his enthusiasm. I really believe that the father of, of eternity is an enthusiast. I really believe when he boomed out over his son's baptism, this is my beloved son. <laughs> I'm really well pleased. I think there's something in there that needs to just get into your spirit. Like he got excited to the point of booming out from heaven about him getting baptized do you understand? Like children get baptized. It's not difficult to get baptized. And I, I mean, how often do you in an average day honestly live in the good of your father saying, hey, well done? When you do, do you, do you actually live in the reality where you're like, I think I can hear his smile? Or are you like me? And the voice I always heard was the voice of the challenge. Oh, yeah, got to change there. And that's probably, you know, there are challenges to growing in the life, my goodness, following Jesus. But how much is his voice of affirmation a reality on you? And this is real warfare, spiritual warfare. One of the ways that God said to me, I want you to understand, Tom, how much I actually value you is, he told me to wear aftershave every single day. Now, I know that sounds bizarre for some of you maybe, but I have a bottle of aftershave, but being the skin flint that I am, I, you know, tight with money, I would, you know, wear it once a year. And it was like 50 years old sort of thing, you know. Get and I felt God say, oh my goodness, you're my beloved son. I want you to wear that aftershave four, five squirts every single day. Now this is because I'm anointed. I'm a child of God. Do you understand? God has given everything to make me now who I am. And so when I in the morning, I, it's like a spiritual discipline. Seriously. Because, you know, you forget the Bible's a spiritual discipline, prayer. For me, to go, tsh, tsh, tsh. I smell that polo, which is Larry's favorite and it's now my favorite. And seriously, something in me just shifts. So, try it. I know, no, I'm, maybe this is not communicating, but for, I mean, honestly, it's like, I'm actually really precious to him. And I don't think I believe that. I think it's too expensive. Well, it's, it's, it's a bad use of money. I have a poverty mentality. I don't believe my dad's going to provide. I don't think he sees me. But I'm learning to. And when I spray it, you can think of me in the morning. You can comment on how good I smell. 
because I do smell good. Listen, I, I, another illustration. Josie carries the same orphan-hearted thing, right? We actually pay now for Spotify Premium. <laughs> I know this sounds crazy. I, I don't know how this is helping at all. It might be a rabbit trail, but... Because we, I knew that in my heart, I was like, well, I'll have the, the free one and listen to the adverts, even though I love music. Music communicates to me something. <laughs> it just does something to me. I'm, just, I'm a musician. My family's a musician. And I thought, God, say, Tom, I want, you to, I want you to have... Do you know what I'm saying? You, I've given everything for you. You, you're, you are my beloved child. You're important to me. And you can actually trust me to, to, to pay... To, to the, I'm going to cover that. Now, some of you are probably like, what the heck? But this, I'm just trying to give you what it looks like in my broken life to slowly, gradually, day by... This is not a big rush forward, get it all healed. This is a daily thing of saying, God, I wake up every day. C.S. Lewis famously said, every, I, by the end of the day, I feel like I'm actually a son of God. And by the morning, I wake up and I feel like a skin of sin has grown over me. I, the mornings are really interesting. It's a particular time for me, I feel... I have to really battle. I wake up with this thought, you're late. I mean, even though it's early, I'm already behind. Anyone here, I feel that. Just, it's a real quiet, like, quick, quick, quick. You've got to, and I can see, I can feel it in my body. I don't know what, I'm like, Phew. and I just feel like, I've been meditating on 1 Corinthians 13, which says, love is patient. That means God is patient with me. He's not, he's, he's really He's patient with me. Do you think of the most patient person you can think of? He's so much more than that. He's not in a hurry with you. When I get up, and I can, I'm so hard on myself. I'm this orphan, age 40, going, right, okay, I've got to make sure I read that enough and then get down. I've got to be super down. I'm like, wow. And it's all my own version of achieving. And I'm like, no, I'm just so average. But I'm your son. And you are good. And you've, 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 responded to my sin and the sin of the world with mercy upon mercy upon mercy upon mercy. And you've done something in me now that will never be taken away from me. You are a royal one. You and I are royalty. We're royalty. We are children of the King. And that identity can never be taken away. There was a beautiful, um, well actually it wasn't beautiful, but it spoke to me. Uh, Prince Harry, uh, any of you know the royals in the Britain? Prince Harry, uh, who's just got engaged to Meghan a few years ago in his youth, he did something stupid where he, um, he wore a Nazi costume. It was awful. And someone took a photo of it, front of the newspapers, everyone was in shock. Rightly so. But I thought, why is it that we're so shocked about him when every, lots of people will be wearing these, you know? And I suddenly thought, well, of course, it's because of his identity. It's because of he's royal. And that's, that's beneath you. Harry, that is not funny. That's not okay. That's beneath you. And he was contrite and he was repentant and he said sorry. And, but this is the thing that then struck me. He didn't lose his sense of royalty. It was a foolish thing. He sinned, okay? He did something bad, but it was done. The attitude to failure was not it crushed me and defined me and now I'm defined by this failure in my life. He was still Harry. He was still royalty. How was he royalty? Because of the grace of who he was born into. Sheer grace. And so he can, in a, he, there's a lightness to royalty. 
you look at it, they're not trying to prove something. They're just inherited this scandalous, this scandalous privilege. And when they sin, which he did in that moment, he, did, he isn't a sinner. In that, he, do you know what I'm saying? In that picture, he's still royalty. He, he's someone who can go. So when you sin, the enemy comes straight in. This is who you are. It's not who you are. It is not who you are. God has worked really, really, really hard through sending his son, dying on the cross in your place, him being cursed so that you and I could be blessed. Him being covered in your sin, even the sins that you haven't done yet, were already at Calvary 2,000 years ago. And when he was raised from the dead, he said, that's it. It's, it's now a new age and the age of royalty and holiness and my children, the family of God, finally now will start to go global. And you have been brought into that. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that amazing? Wow, I, I love that. I'm not going to do my third point because... Time is against us, and I, and I know with these things, what I'm learning slowly is that each truth is so big, isn't it? That there's a sense in which less is more. So maybe you could stand to your feet, and I'm going to invite Mark to come and to help us in the last five minutes just respond to what we've heard about being children of God.